0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News.
1: I think at the very least, October the 7th has shown everybody that the status quo was not working. It was not sustainable. We can't go back to what was before, but that does open the way for a new approach, whatever that may be.
0: That was Christian coates Ulrichsen, the Baker Institute for Public Policy academic and Middle East expert, explaining how and why the October 7th attacks on Israel by Hamas are a game-changer for the region. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm George Hay, EMEA editor at Reuters Breaking Views. This week, I'm joined by Christian Coates Ulrichsen, Fellow for the Middle East at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy in Houston. Christian has published extensively on the Gulf region and his new book, Centres of Power in Arab Gulf States, comes out in November. We discussed how major regional players like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have reacted to the attacks by Hamas on Israeli civilians and to Israel's response in Gaza. We also examined what a de-escalation of the current situation might look like and how it could represent an opportunity as well as a risk for Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Listen on to hear our conversation. Hi, Christian. Good to have you on the exchange.
1: Uh, thanks for having me.
0: Since October the 7th and the attacks on uh, Israel, clearly lots has happened. And I, I'm just um, interested in, first of all, you have... Uh, a lot of expertise in examining and looking at the main players in the Middle East like Saudi Arabia and UAE. just wanted to know, are they, are they kind of responding to the events unfolding in Israel in the way that you would have expected? Or are they taking a, a tougher line or, or a softer line? How are you seeing it?
1: Well, I think so far in the three weeks since October 7th, we have seen both the Saudis and the Emiratis trying to make sure that the fighting is contained and it doesn't escalate into a regional conflict which could threaten stability and security in the Gulf, especially if it were to include or encompass uh, Iran. And I think that's consistent with what we've seen really since 2020, where both Saudi Arabia and the UAE have been trying to at least de-escalate points of tension uh, and to focus on uh, finding ways to coexist with Iran and with obviously the different groups that Iran has supplied and supported over the past for many, many years. And that's rooted, I think, in the 2019 attacks on energy and maritime targets in Saudi Arabia, the UAE, which has really forced a recalibration of those countries' strategies. Uh, that, that was by that was
0: kind of the the, the, yeah, the Houthi, Houthi rebels.
1: Yeah, those were attributed, but never formally so, to Iran yeah. or to Iranian-linked groups. And they, of course, took out half of Saudi Arabia's oil production in October, yeah. September 2019. And really, I think, showed these, the vulnerability of Saudi Arabia and the UAE to these kinds of attack. And ever since 2020, we've seen a de-escalation kind of momentum. Saudi Arabia needs to uh, focus on the Vision 2030, the Giga projects that based on attracting huge numbers of tourism, entertainment, hospitality, turning Saudi Arabia into destination that's not served by images of missiles slamming into cities. Right. And the UAE is gearing up for COP28 that begins in Dubai on the 30th of November. And they right. can't afford and don't want to have a major regional war either. So since October the 7th, we've seen uh, both countries, I think, and others in the Gulf working to at least ensure that this doesn't escalate. And that's what I would have expected.
0: But I suppose the, the there's a kind of tension between this. Um, I mean, as you say, UA, the UAE um, and Saudi both try, want to try and kind of uh, have a, as calm a Middle East as possible in order to get um, to make it easier for foreign investment to come into the region. And there's a bit of a kind of tension there because the UAE has already normalized relationships with Israel and Saudi was kind of seemed to be on the cusp of doing so um but equally they need to be kind of aware of the fact that their um populations will have natural sympathy with the palestinian people and um you can't you know the the, the leaders of these countries have to be aware of that and i just how do, how do you see that tension as as uh, being balanced at the moment because you, you certainly when we saw the, the attack on uh, the, the, the hospital in Gaza, which both sides blamed on on, on each other, you, you you saw quite quickly a, a quite strong response from both Saudi and the UAE and the other Arab states, right?
1: Well, yes, and the UAE actually, I think, on Twitter blamed Israel for conducting the attack. And actually, yeah. I mean, that was obviously in the immediate aftermath, before when it was still unclear who had committed that uh, that mass atrocity. So, yeah, exactly. So but how do you did...
0: account? How do you account for that kind of? You know, slightly knee-jerk mm. response.
1: Well, as you say, I think leaders in the Gulf are trying to straddle a very fine balance between the relationships they have already established with Israel, which are formal relationships in the case of the UAE and uh, a very an increasingly open relationship in the case of Saudi Arabia. It's only last month that the Israeli Minister of Tourism was in Saudi Arabia, for a multinational meeting, a multilateral meeting, the first Israeli official, I think or minister to to visit Saudi Arabia so I think as you say the normalization process was ongoing and had happened for, for the UAE but obviously the reaction to these attacks and to the the daily images on television screens all over the Arab world to what is happening in Gaza has led over time to a gradual hardening of statements that we've seen the Saudis especially and increasingly also in their first reaction on October the 7th uh, tried to put into context that these attacks were within the context of the occupation of, of Gaza and of the Palestinian people by an increasingly right wing Israeli government. And we've seen over time the UAE become a bit more hard too. And I do think in in those statements that the leaderships are really trying to walk a tie walk a fine line between acknowledging the real public anger that their citizens have, but obviously trying to maintain those relationships which they anticipate will survive into the future. It's been three weeks already, and we haven't seen the Abraham Accords formally disbanded or abandoned, for example. Right. And I would expect them to survive. But obviously in times like this, this is what puts them to the test, just because there's what we we already seen, I think before October the seventh, there was little public support in the Arab world for normalization. This was seen as an elite-driven strategy, Right. And so that public support isn't
0: there. That, that's kind of interesting, this idea that there's, a, there's an elite elitist element to, um, to, to, to the, the keenness um, of, of Saudi or UAE people uh, to normalisation. I mean, is that, is that a bigger problem for Saudi than in UAE, do you think? Because Saudi, bluntly, just has a bigger population.
1: Well, it does. I mean, there are 18 million Saudi citizens versus one million or so Emiratis. And nice. Saudi Arabia has obviously uh, taken for itself a great degree of legitimacy as the custodian of the holy mosques of Mecca and Medina. So Saudi Arabia has an Islamic and religious legitimacy very different from, from the UAE. And that's I think, for all of Mohammed bin Salman's attempts to take religion out of the Saudi state, or at least give it a lesser position, I don't think that that can be done overnight. And certainly events like this do really mobilize people in a way that few other things do. And we saw this at the World Cup in Qatar last year, where Arabs from all over the Middle East came together and the one thing they unified behind was Palestine. So yes. I think this is a reminder that these uh, Palestine remains and retains a, an appeal that can really bring people together in in, in very strong some ways, yeah,
0: and it's, I mean, is there a danger that, um, I mean, if you're if you're Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of um, Saudi Arabia, um, you, I mean that leaves potentially leaves you quite exposed if um, if this kind of support for normalisation, doing deals for with Israel, US, if if that's seen as a kind of elitist thing or a thing that only the Top echelon is interested in, um, and you get a kind of escalation where Israel, um, you know, makes a mess of Gaza or the West Bank, or a lot more poly- Palestinians are, are killed. What uh, you know that that potentially leaves you in a difficult position, does it?
1: Well, it does. And a lot of what the Saudi leadership has been doing over the last few years has been trying to really take politics out of the equation by. You're very clear that if anyone uh, questions the decisions of the leadership, they risk, they take very great risks. And so I think the, they don't want to encourage any public or popular debate in Saudi Arabia over decisions taken by the leadership. But on an issue like this, if public anger really builds up, you know, there will maybe informal channels and ways of making that public anger known to the leadership. I mean, they'll be very carefully scrutinizing responses. And if they, we may see that the leadership changes its messaging in response to what they see as that sort of rising up of of public feeling. So that's often what they try to do to keep ahead of changing sentiment.
0: Right. And I mean, do you think as a result of this kind of tension that there's going to be a kind of two pronged approach to the communication that goes uh, between the likes of Saudi and UAE to the US and Israel? as things unfold in the middle east because um in israel in particular because i mean is there going to be a difference between what they're saying publicly and what they're saying kind of behind the scenes i mean if you know for uh, the, the hospital one being quite a good example i mean do you think you know they the uae might have come out immediately and said okay well if it is israel's fault and this is unacceptable and awful but behind the scenes they're kind of saying you know we kind of have to say that to you know, to keep up appearances or, you know, yeah. is it more integrated than that in terms of messaging?
1: I think definitely they have to do something in public to be seen to be doing something by right. the domestic public. And that probably uh, explains some of the statements that have come out of the official bodies like the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or in in both countries. Um, I think behind the scenes there'll probably be more nuanced messaging. I think both Saudi Arabia and the UAE have no love for the kind of resistance camp that Hamas represents. They have, the Saudis especially, but both countries have tried to position themselves as the leaders of the opposite camp, the camp that is trying to move forward in the Middle East with greater connectivity, networking with Israel. And so yeah. I think in privately there'll be Sort of urging a probably a, a more nuanced message that suggests that further escalation just brings well, risks empowering extremists on all sides and makes it even more difficult to come to some sort of resolution that can at least allow parties to move forward and i think given so much of what we've seen out of saudi and uae over the last several years has been to try to counter as they see it destabilizing Extremist groups. I think they'll see that this conflict, the more that it deepens and generates even greater levels of polarization, risks doing exactly the opposite. So I would imagine they're probably making those points in private to to all parties, and the UAE can do so formally to Israeli counterparts because they have the uh, they have the normalization.
0: Yeah, well, that makes sense. But I mean, that that point you make about Hamas is pretty. Critical here, and um, and it may not be obvious to people who are not sitting in the Middle East or who are who are not experts in it. But um, that that just unpack this whole point about why Saudi and um, uh, UAE may not see to eye, eye to eye with um, Hamas. Like, what, what are the, what is the kind of backstory there?
1: I mean, Hamas is uh, linked, obviously, to the Muslim Brotherhood. Saudi Arabia and the UAE especially especially since the Arab Spring in 2011 have really tried to push back against Muslim Brotherhood and any Islamist groups active in politics, not just at home but across the Gulf and increasingly across the wider Middle East uh, because they feel that they potentially pose a threat to the established political order feel that elections were there to be held as they were for example in Egypt in 2012 would be mm. won by Islamists and that that would send a strong signal message to citizens elsewhere that they can start demanding greater political rights and reforms and that's something that yeah. the Saudi and Emirati leadership do not want to encourage.
0: It's not the and kind so of thing you see... would like if you're a monarchy basically. Well, no if
1: you're an authoritarian <laughs> monarchy absolutely and so <laughs> What we've seen since 2011 really has been a pushback against those openings that were created in 2011. And uh, more broadly speaking, Hamas is uh, associated at least with being one of the groups that Iran supports and uh, supplies uh, uh, missiles and weapons to, together with Hezbollah, the Houthis in Yemen. And so certainly the Saudis and the Emiratis see this as part of the, the kind of axis of resistance to the established status quo, the political order in the Middle East. And uh, they're not part of that. And they have spent much of the 2010s really pushing back against that in Yemen, for example, um, at increasing cost to themselves, which is why I think they're really not wanting any further escalation uh, now, just because it goes against so many of those dynamics. So they were trying to diffuse rather than inflame.
0: Yeah. And I mean, Confusingly in all this, um, we had the the China brokered um Saudi and Iran, of not not exactly normalization of relations, but kind of reopening yeah. of re or vague re engaging of relations earlier in the year. Um that's that's clearly had some kind of impact in the current situation because there was contact between Riyadh and Tehran. Um in the in the wake of the October 7th attacks but how how important do you see that i mean is that a kind of a real uh, you know helpful thing for stability in the current situation or do you think it wouldn't take much for you know if you, if things escalate in the way that people have kind of talked a lot about it with you know Hezbollah in, in Lebanon which also backed by Iran um launching ta- attacks on Israel from the north um, you know, would it take much of that for, for you know, any kind of uh, warming and relations between Saudi and Iran to immediately cool down again? Um, or do you think it's that, that is a kind of helpful thing in the current environment?
1: Well, the fact that Mohammed Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, uh, suddenly made his first telephone conversation with... Uh, Iran's president, Ibrahim Raisi, five days after the October 7th attack, I think it spoke volumes. I think it spoke volumes about the desire, at least, to maintain an open channel of communication at the very highest level uh, between Riyadh and Tehran to ensure that there were no accidental escalation or trigger points. And obviously Hezbollah attacking or opening up a second front for Israel would be a trigger point. And we've that that conversation, but basically between heads of the state. I mean, Mohammed Salman's head of government, but basically de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, yeah. was then followed by the Iranian foreign minister attending a an emergency meeting of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, which was held in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, which was a further opportunity for conversations he had with all the Gulf leaders, all the Gulf foreign ministers. So we've seen constant interaction over the past three weeks at the highest levels to to really I think just talk through everything that has been happening to avoid any accidental trigger. Uh, the, the fact that the restoration of relations which had been under negotiation for more than two years, the fact that it was announced in Beijing in March was I think also illustrative of the fact that China wants stability in the region. China gets well, almost well, huge amounts of its oil and gas from mm. from the Gulf, from both sides of the Gulf, yeah. And and their interests would not would not have been served would not be served by any conflict in the region too. And I think the certainly the Chinese had seen the escalation of tension at least between Iran and Israel, and the lack of any obvious uh, sign of progress on the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, as a potential threat and I think that's why the Chinese brought the Saudis and Iranians together yeah. to get that deal over the line uh, it was a statement that they were going to move in if, if to try and protect at least uh, stability and that so far has been working, we haven't seen that escalation over the last three weeks
0: and
1: yeah. I think partly it is because they have those functional relationships that they didn't have before
0: Yeah, well, I suppose, I suppose the question then is like um... As you say, um, perhaps surprisingly, we haven't seen things escalation escalate from this kind of um, these incredible surprise um, and terrible attacks on October seventh. Um, but if if what's what's the path? What what is the most promising or least unpromising de-escalatory path from where we are now? Um, I mean. It may seem a bit premature to be talking about that, but it's pretty clear from what we're talking about here that Saudi has this normalisation agenda and MBS pretty much wants to kind of, you know, continue it at some point, even if it's in the deep freeze at the moment. Is there a way, what what, what kind of things would need to happen for that to be realised? Like what, is there a way of kind of, uh, you know, a checklist of things that you would need to kind of tick off in order to get that back on track?
1: Yes. I mean, the Saudi leadership, I think, knows that both Israel and the U.S. really want normalization to happen, mm. which could give them more cards. I mean, it could give them the leverage. They, they, if they play that right, they can maybe tell the Israelis in the U.S., if you want this to proceed and to resume, this is what you have to do vis-a-vis the Palestinians. Yeah. Because what had been leaked in media reporting before October 7th with the outlines of a potential deal. Uh, And they included a defense relationship, a close defense relationship with the US and nuclear enrichment, uranium for for Saudi. But what had been a sticking point was the level of concessions for, for Palestine, which would have allowed both Saudi Arabia and Israel to sell any deal domestically and for very different reasons. So I think the Saudis are likely to double down on the Palestinian component, also to show that the Saudi leadership is leading the Arab world in trying to secure a fair settlement for for Palestine in this. I think what would need to happen would be obviously an end to the conflict, an agreement about what happens next for Gaza, presumably greater financial support from from the Gulf for post-conflict reconstruction, and obviously an agreement with would have to be with Israel on what can be allowed in and out. And so I think these would be basic ingredients of anything that would allow the bare minimum of a conversation about normalization to move forward. But the fact that I think the Saudis know that the other side really wants it to happen gives them some leverage if they play their cards right.
0: Yeah, yeah that's that's so that's very interesting. I mean like this idea um given that you were saying that um Normalization has been seen as a bit of a kind of elitist thing, or a, a kind of not a, uh, a a concern of the of the people in in Saudi or UAE or, or whatever. Um, if if you know the the sweet spot for MBS presumably would be to strike a deal which still allows him to get his whatever he wanted out of the US in terms of defense and nuclear stuff, but. If he was also to kind of, if he was to be seen in the region as someone who secured some kind of good or better deal for Palestinians, then that would that would um that would really, I mean, apart from really helping the Palestinians, that would that also really help him and how he's perceived, wouldn't it? Uh,
1: well, very much so, and especially in terms of his domestic audience, it would, would certainly burnish the credentials he is trying to build, not just. At home, but also he's trying to reinvent or rehabilitate his reputation, which took a battering abroad in the yeah. wake of well, the war in Yemen, uh, the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, and, you know, the blockade of Qatar, the um, kidnapping of the Lebanese prime minister. There was a series of decisions <laughs> yeah. between 2015 and about 2019, which really left him out in the cold. But what we've seen since 20. 20- 21 especially has been the Mohammed Salman trying to reinvent himself as a statesman and right. being front and center of Gulf Cooperation Council meetings, uh, especially in relation to the reconciliation with Qatar. He hosted a meeting in Saudi Arabia in August to try and move forward on Ukraine. He led the Arab League process of reintegrating the Assad regime in Syria. So I think I, I think certainly he feels that. Saudi Arabia is the natural leader in the Arab world. They obviously have the Islamic leadership mantle too. And so I think were he to be seen to be achieving something that few others had managed to do in terms of significant uh, breakthrough for the Palestinians, that would that would be a real feather in his cap. I mean the question yeah. is, and can he do it? And of course, Israel I think is right now at least the shock of what has happened in in Israel on October the seventh is so great that the trauma is it will take a long time to maybe allow for a breakthrough to happen. But I I think at the very least, October the 7th has shown everybody that the the status quo was not working. It was not sustainable. We can't go back to what was before, but that does open the way for a a new approach, whatever that may be.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned this idea of kind of gulf investment or in the rebuilding of Gaza. And obviously, this is, again, we're kind of getting ahead of, ahead of ourselves, because we don't know what's going to happen there. But we can assume that at some point, um whether there's been a kind of bloody Israeli, you know, occupation invasion, or whether there's some there's been some kind of off ramp, there will be something the the question of what happens afterwards and how the, the obvious problem with the the kind of vision you just set out there is hamas is still there and like disentangling hamas from the rest yeah. of uh the palestinian people in gaza and elsewhere is is quite difficult and um uh, notwithstanding it's really difficult i mean how, how do you think that might pan out i mean i suppose the first question is is there any meaningful way is it is it Is it a starter or a complete non-starter to imagine that uh, Israel or the US or anyone else can kind of surgically unpick Hamas from the wider Palestinian people in Gaza?
1: Well, I think firstly, by acknowledging that there is a difference between the two, that not every Palestinian in Gaza is Hamas would be a Mm. start. And some of the initial statements from Israeli officials seem to indicate that every Palestinian was Hamas and therefore a Mm. target and Right. And I think trying to draw a distinction between the two, which is already happening, is a a sign of movement on that issue. Of course the challenge will be to, I don't think you can uproot an ideology, I think uh, also the devastation of Gaza risks further empowering those who are against any form of engagement or concession arguably leads to further radicalization, yeah. potentially even worse than Hamas. We've seen obviously in other instances how Al-Qaeda could be replaced by Islamic State, which is even more extreme. Right. So I think this is a concern. I don't think you can just go in and surgically remove Hamas. We saw this with the Taliban after 2003 or 2001, but especially after 2003 in Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, they just simply melted away. They People maybe stopped claiming themselves as Taliban, but 15 or so years later when conditions changed, there they were back in power. Right. So I think this is the challenge. I think for, for the Gulf states especially, they're going to, I mean, Qatar, for example, had been supporting Gaza financially with humanitarian and financial support, coordinated through Israel at every step of the way, partly because Israel didn't want to do so itself. So whatever yeah. relationship goes forward, I think will have to be coordinated with Israel and I think right now, especially after October 7th, any notion of any engagement with anything that even resembles Hamas is completely off the table. So that does complicate things considerably just because, as you say, Hamas is there. It has been in charge of the Gaza Strip since 2007 and the notion that it can be completely eliminated or rooted out, I think is probably something that's not achievable in reality.
0: Yes, but I suppose, um, again. Assuming that there is some kind of way forward after whatever is going to happen in Gaza happens, would you say the the Gulf states, the big Gulf states, UAE, Saudi, and I suppose maybe also Egypt, and and also the Israeli government? I mean, there's all these different players, kind of interest groups, in what would happen in a kind of rebuilding scenario, or kind of and and one of the obvious problems is that it's not just a question of getting rid of Hamas, and then you know a credible government step steps in um, from the Palestinian Authority or Fatah. There's a a lot of um, issues with that as well. So is it clear to you what kind of, you know, uh, what what role, is there a role that um, Saudi or UAE could play in sorting that or solving that problem? Uh, in a rebuilding phase, other than just handing over some money?
1: Well, I think, as you say, even the Palestinian Authority and Fatah in the West Bank is increasingly unfit for purpose in many ways. They don't really have any political or popular legitimacy. It's been many, many years since there was an election and the leadership is aging and not necessarily representative. And so I think if there's a way of finding a new generation of technocrats that can really be or do things differently, perhaps focusing on economic reconstruction and less on political infighting, mm. in both in both Gaza and uh, and the West Bank. I think that would be maybe a. A way in for attracting greater investment from or at least reconstruction funds from the gulf i think what would be needed of course would be some degree of guarantee from from israel that uh, uh, the investments that were made would not be at risk of just being literally demolished in in any new round of fighting as we've seen with some of the european union funded projects for example you know, they need to be durable they don't need to be if they could have continually held at risk by uh, any periodic resumption of conflict, I think that that's not helpful. And obviously that leaves the region vulnerable to those extremists that uh, would retain the power to be a spoiler. So I think for the Saudis, the Egyptians, the UAE and others, they would have to find ways of really changing the calculation of incentives for people to actually want to not spoil what's happening. And... I mean, we saw, we saw that with the with, with Northern Ireland in the 1990s, where yeah. gradually the calculation changed, and I mean, the biggest single uh, one of the biggest single atrocities in Northern Ireland came after the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. Yes. But by that point, that really drew well, drained support for for the IRA just because people didn't want to go back to what had happened before. Yeah, and so I mean we're a long way off that, and the situation in Gaza is, I mean, comparab- incomparably worse than. The situation in northern ireland but finding some way to change that calculation of incentives i think is not easy but that has to happen for anything to really change
0: okay well i think that's a good place to uh round up then uh right well um thanks so much for joining us on the exchange christian it's been really good having you
1: uh, thanks for having me
0: thanks for tuning in this podcast was produced by oliver taslich in london Subscribe to The Exchange and our sister podcast, The Views Room, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Catch up with more of our views at BreakingViews.com and on the X social media site where our handle is at BreakingViews.
1: I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine.
0: Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover.
1: To the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News, wherever you get your podcasts.